Hello and welcome to The Last Edit, a weekly film podcast where we choose a film each week and then discuss. Let's get to it, shall we? I'm Sleeve. And I'm Silver Hawkins. And this week we've decided to pay respect to a wonderful pioneer in directing who unfortunately passed away very recently, and that of course is Nicholas Rogue. So for those who don't know Nicholas Rogue, he started out as a, as, as a technical guy on set, did some cin- uh, cinematography. He was actually in the second unit for David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia. He then did a lot of technical work on different films, but his first true film was with Donald Campbell, the artist, and that was Performance, which was with uh, Mick Jagger at the time. And I think the studio thought they were getting a Beatles-esque Hard Day's Night pop classic, yeah, they weren't. This film is filled with violence and, and sexual imagery and and is quite brutal at times. And Warner Brothers, yeah, they were they were concerned. But the film came out anyway. It was very unique and it did quite well. After that, he went on to direct Walkabout with Jenny Agatha, a film I really, really like and I haven't watched in a long time. And then he, he went on to do things like The Man Who Fell From Earth, uh, To Earth with um, David Bowie, another very iconic film. And even The Witches, Robert Dolls Witches with Angelica Houston, which came in the 90s. And that's just odd. In all of his filmography, that one film stands out to me. It's just a bit odd. But you can see you can see some of his techniques in there, which is quite interesting. Uh, but the film we're going to talk about today is possibly his magnum opus. Now, it's written by Daphne du Maurier, who is, of course, the writer of The Birds and Jamaica Inn. And it's essentially about a couple, uh, Laura and... John Baxter, who are played by Donald Sutherland and uh, Julie Christie, uh, respectively. And they are a married couple with two children who have a house in England. And he is an architect who restores old buildings, and in this case, a church, which is in Venice. So while they're at home in the opening scenes, he is flipping through slides of this, uh, you know, stained glass windows in churches and, and looking to about how to restore them. And he starts seeing red on these slides and they start to appear and become more overt on frame and then it bleeds across the slide and throughout this we're cross-cutting between his daughter who is dressed in red and she's outside playing with her doll and with her with a, a red ball and this red ball goes into what looks like a bog a marsh almost and the daughter falls in i think the daughter's called christine she falls in and basically drowns. Now, while this is happening, we're cross-cutting back to the to the parents, and there's some interesting moments that we'll get to later. But Donald Sutherland's character John kind of has this uh, this inkling, this this sense that something is going wrong outside with his daughter because of what's happening on the slides. So he pegs it outside and charges into the into the marsh, finds her underwater, drags her out, tries to revive her to resuscitate her. It doesn't work, and unfortunately, his young daughter dies. Then we jump forward to Venice. So the couple have gone back to Venice after this tragedy, and John is back doing the, the, the restoration of the church. Now, during this time, there's a little cafe scene where Laura, his wife, uh, comes across two sisters. And one of those sisters is blind. The blind sister says she has something called second sight. So she can see beyond herself. She can see in the ether. And she says she can see Christine, her daughter, and she's happy. And that's what we'll stop it there for, for plot terms. We'll, we'll come to other points. But that's the basic setup of the film. So I guess my first question is, because obviously you said you hadn't seen this before. This is your first Rogue film. Yeah. How did you get on with it stylistically? 
how did you did you enjoy the editing techniques because that's something with rogue which i always find is uh very prominent in his films it's certainly prominent in this one yeah i mean the transitions are arguably the most noticeable noticeable stylistic choice for the film the way it cross cuts like in the opening scene and in several mm. other scenes throughout the film uh like uh the love scene between um john and his wife mm. um also makes use of it uh it works to varying degrees. Uh, in the opening scene, it works exceptionally well, I thought. Um, it also works reasonably well in the love scene. And then there's a really odd scene where um, John's wife is talking to John about um, the psychic, uh, telling him how much she means, how he, she, she's given her peace over the loss of their daughter. And it then cross-cuts to um, the two old ladies laughing at mm. something and it makes it seem like they're laughing at fooling her or there's malice in it or or something and then that's never really addressed afterwards uh, why, yeah. why they were laughing or anything and it seems extraordinarily manipulative that particular cross cut um for no like no particular reason that i could discern um and that that, that was really the only sort of cross cut moment that 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 sort of fell short a little bit for me, but other than that, stylistically, it's phenomenally done. Uh, like the the tension it mounts um, in the opening scene, where you just know. I mean, you know the moment you see uh, Christine's reflection as she's walking across. I think it's like a tree stump or something over hmm. over the pond or or bog or whatever it is, and you see her reflection in the water. You know she's going to fall in, and you know she's going to drown. Uh, yeah. And there are sort of dis discordant musical notes in in there as well, as I recall. Um, yeah. That sort of bring that sense of disharmony and and the tension and threat to bear as well. Uh, and it's contrasted with the sort of uh, domestic uh, tranquility that you see in the household between John and his wife as they're just talking, as he's as they're working and so forth, and talking about work. And he's getting this sort of prescient feeling that something's wrong, and he spills this paint over the picture of the the church, church, um, church lobby, or church hall, um, and and it, it eventually dawns on him that no, something's really, really wrong, and he runs out. I thought that was really, really well done. Um, I mean, the moment he picks her out of the the water and and walks up with her and. Uh, and her and her wife comes out and sees him and screams mm. and then that 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 the cut that comes there to um after the wife screams upon seeing uh, their dead daughter and then cuts immediately to Venice is a bit jarring as well um, yeah but i think that's effective like that is that is an effective way to sort of get us through that transition and we know immediately i mean pretty much immediately as they show that they are in Venice now we we, we can pick up on what happened and that yeah it, there's been an unspecified period of time that's passed but it's a good while after um but i thought i mean to me really what stuck out to me about the film was its authenticity it has this really really authentic feel to it that you see very very rarely in movies um mm. it goes from like the, the the set locations that that, that Rogue has chosen throughout Venice, where he shows 
a side of Venice that you don't ordinarily see. Absolutely. Um, there are a lot of like along the sh more shadowy canals on kind of almost underground sewer systems. Almost. Um, there are all the Italian contractors speak Italian, uh, which yeah. is another thing I noticed. And the relationship between John and his wife feels really authentic. It feels like mm. an actual marriage, which, I mean, Don, all credit to Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. They really, really pulled that off. They have great chemistry. And I mean, the love scene between them is one of the, it's one of the best love scenes I've seen in film. It's not even, I mean, it, it it's fairly, um, it's fairly notorious, but I don't really, to me, it's not even, it's, it is very explicit. I mean, it's practically pornography in places. Um, but strangely, I don't find it erotic at all. It's a very, I don't think, I don't think it's shot that way. Is it? I mean, no. I think the controversy at the time, I, I actually watched this again with my girlfriend last night and she'd never seen it before. Right. And this isn't her type of film, but obviously I introduced her to a, a lot of strange and obscure films at times. But we were watching that scene, and it doesn't—it's—it doesn't feel erotic because, first of all, the way it's shot, its duration—it's um, not—it's not cross cut so heavily. It's that quick until the end, you know, supposedly yeah. matching the orgasm for them. Say, in terms of the way it cuts for them like, leaving after the yeah, after sex. And then yeah, but I just think it's not as hard hitting as it was because of the time we're in now, the era we're in. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it does have full nudity, and it does—it it is yeah. really quite explicit but it, i mean it, it's just the, the chemistry between the characters isn't particularly i didn't find it particularly sex sexual i found it yeah. intimate rather than sexual yeah exactly there was no sense. there was no typical no it doesn't there's no typical sex shots you know most films you have very typical shots that are there to produce eroticism and they're often to enforce the male gaze and to ensure that the woman is objectified you don't see that in this scene at all no. As you said, it's much it's much softer. It's much more intimate a scene. It's as if you're peeking into the life of a couple rather than voyeuristically watching. Like the, the way it begins, where uh, I forget uh, what John's wife is called in the film. Uh, Laura. Laura. Where Laura basically just starts caressing him, uh, mm. like sliding her hand up and down his back and then down his leg. It just feels so natural. And so intimate. Natural, exactly. Um, and it's it's really a credit to the film because so often these films are so these this kind of scene is one of the most difficult things to pull off in a film where it feels natural and where it doesn't feel artistic because I mean that's what ninety not ninety to ninety five percent of love scenes in in a film does, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And they're there for very different reasons. Yeah. This is to show the true connection between the two. The two yes, people. And, and that's getting rekindled as a, as a result of um, yeah. of Laura's finding peace. Yeah. The fact that her though her daughter is dead, she's still with her, as it were. What I find so enticing about Rogue's style as a whole, especially his earlier work, before perhaps he then went on to do things like The Witches, is that we mentioned that transition where Laura yeah. hears that her daughter you know, screams... When he sees her daughter dead, when she sees her daughter dead, and then we cut directly to the drill in the wall. Yeah. Now, not not only is it jarring for the audience purposefully to jar you out of that tragic event, and here we are in Venice. It's also trust on the audience's part. Most Hollywood films are entirely um, continuous in their editing to foreground yeah. the narrative. That's the whole point. So 
what Rogue does and what a lot of European directors often do is they don't use long transitions. They trust the audience to understand by intellect that time has passed, that we have moved forward into an entire, entirely new yeah. scene. And you're right, you don't see that in a lot of films um, anymore. And particularly during the 70s and 80s, we did see a lot of that type of, uh, type of cinema come out. Uh, his, his editing in particular, I, I find, for the time as well, quite wonderful. Very yeah. brave. That cross-cutting opening scene, I mean, it's a masterclass in how to foreground, how to foreshadow, how to use cross-cutting to effectively build pleasurable tension, and then at its crescendo, click, and we cut. Yeah, It's beautifully, it's beautifully um, shot as well, as, as you say. Uh, one great thing about uh, a filmmaker like Nicholas Rogue is... It's not just naturalism. It's almost at times documentary. I mean, for instance, when was the last time you saw a, any film at all that used so many quick handheld dynamic zooms? It ju just zooms. Most, most filmmakers will look at a zoom, unless it's an achingly slow one, and they will say, an audience will see the technique of the zoom being used, therefore that will pull them out of the immersion of the film, so we don't use a technique like that. We will move the camera forward. Rogues, no. No, no. We will use the zoom as absolute emphasis on situations when they need to be emphasized. And I think that technique ties wonderfully well into the cross-cutting that he uses throughout periods of the film. Yeah. I also like the idea that you mentioned that we see a completely different view of Venice. And we do. It's very much like something like a, um, David Lynch would do. So the opening of Blue Velvet... We come from um, this glorious music and happy blue skies down past an Americana town, beautiful people, um, white picket fence, and then a guy has a heart attack and we go beneath it into the dirt. Now, it's not quite that obvious or, or condensed, but what it does do is scratch the surface of Venice and let us look below what the holidaymakers see. Yeah. The tunnels, the as you said, the 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 naturalistic Italian-speaking workers, you know, um, even even weird moments in it, like the police the police chief. When we finally get there, I think it's a police chief. He's yeah. hidden behind a lamp and he just goes, "Hello." It's like, whoa, that's an interesting way of of doing things. But also his his shot matching, in terms of motion and movement when he does cross cut. Yeah, there's a moment in the in that opening salvo when. The daughter, Christine, giggles. And then we cut to her mother, Laura, giggling, only for a couple of seconds, and then cut immediately back. And that matching of emotion and motion itself through motion on screen, moving left or right, that's continuous through the, the next crosscut, is a beautiful way of matching action on screen. So I think just the whole composition of those sequences just work amazingly well. I think you're... I totally agree. They they really do. And I think one of the things I really respect about the film as well is the fact that it doesn't explain a whole lot of stuff. Um, yeah. It leaves it up to, to the viewer to, to sort of figure it out. Like, I was halfway through the movie because um, uh, John and Laura actually have another child. They have a son. Yeah. And from the moment uh, the crosscut to Venice happened, I was left there thinking... What the what the hell happened to their son? <laughs> yeah, my <laughs> girlfriend said, asked that as well. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, that doesn't get explained until like halfway through the through, through the movie that he's mm. back in school in England. Um, 
So yeah, I I really respect the film for 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 being that brave, for trusting its audience. Um, I will say it does make the film somewhat inaccessible, I think, to to a modern audience because it demands yeah. total attention. Mm. It's not the kind of film you can watch and multitask. You can't really. No, absolutely not. No, you need to be focused on the meeting you're being presented. For, yeah. I mean, if you're not off for a second, you're gonna miss important stuff that's going to leave mm. you lost in the film i think uh but it what it certainly absolutely it's it's a must see for any film student i think it should be oh yeah it should definitely be part of any curriculum that uh that informs film study uh it's it, it, it's it was back when i studied um i i studied it alongside the man who fell to earth they were the two and performance. They were the three. I think we studied, and then we. Right. I think we, I watched Walk About because of that. But yeah, just the bravery of the director to actually think your intelligence might be your, your audience might be really intelligent. They don't need constant transitional tells, audible cues, visual cues. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could if you're being absolutely ultra critical, you could say that the opening solo and a bit further do perhaps foreshadow a bit too much but it's just yeah. just done in such a wonderful way that it it looks amazing on screen i suppose we should talk about the plot as well now and the way that develops so basically what happens is laura's met these sisters she's now somewhat at peace she actually collapses when she first um yeah, she passes goes out. to see them passes out and, and she's um, to see them in the in the bathroom um yeah where they reveal that they've seen christine with uh with her and John in the cafe. Yeah. Uh, and then we get the... the ch Everything changes very quickly in this film, and that's another credit to the way the narrative works um, in conjunction with the techniques he's using. So they basically get a call that their son has had an accident, and Laura wants to go to, to England. She wants uh, be to go. Before then, though, um, she's, Laura has been warned by... Uh, oh, sorry, yes, yeah. That something is going to happen to John. Something is going to happen to John, and that they need to leave Venice. Yeah, and he he becomes ever more hesitant to, because he's become, because of his daughter's death, he's become even more obsessed with the restoration of this church. Yeah, it's it is it, it's basically his only focus at this point. And we also see the mise en scène change at that point, but I'll talk about that in a minute. So, in terms of plot, then, so yeah, we get to a point where, where the son has been um, injured. The Babbages call, if I remember that's their name. Yeah, the Babbages. Um, they run this school over there, and they call. And um, Laura then ends up getting on a plane and heading out to England to see us or make sure he's all right. <coughs> so John then goes back to the, to the uh, church, does the, the restoration, but almost has an incredibly bad accident. And this is where what the sisters tell Laura about him being in danger in this city comes to maybe a, a touch of fruition, the foreshadowing that will happen even later on. Yeah. He has this accident. He's he's taken a small piece of a mosaic that he's fixing the church off the cardinal and goes up on this. Even even my girlfriend was like, they're going, you wouldn't get on that. You would not get on that. Just like two tall by uh, two by fours held up by bits of string with a few of the shelves next to him. Yeah. And it's cautiously waving in the air as he's trying to look at these mosaic pieces. And it just collapses. So that's a near miss for him. Um, and, uh, if we, and then if you move just a little bit further, um, he, he, he's getting drunk a lot at this point. He's going to a cafe on his own. And he's coming back on a boat one day. And he looks across to his left. And he sees the two sisters and Laura dressed in black on a barge going in kind of the opposite direction. And he's like, hold on. 
Laura's supposed to be with my son in England trying to find out what's going on. And then he goes into full detective mode. So then the film becomes almost film noirish with her as the unseen femme fatale. But it doesn't end up that way. So he tries to find her any avenue he can. He, he goes back to the hotel they were stay, staying in. He goes to various parts of town. He goes to see the police chief. And he, he keeps getting told weird things. <laughs> like the police chief's like, well, you go and carry on trying to look for her, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll maybe follow it up or something. And, and he talks to various people who have never seen her. He, he then tries calling back to England and finally gets through. And she's there. He's like, uh, I've just seen you on the canal in Venice. No, no, I'm here. It's all fine. Chill out. Everything's fine. Sun's fine. Everything's good. He's like, okay. Don't know what just happened, but okay. And then well, it gets that, even I mean, weirder. There's at that point he's also had the two, um, two yeah, old yeah. psychic women arrested for because he thinks they kidnapped. Uh, yes. Laura. And then when he realizes that it isn't them, or he doesn't think it's them, he then um, t- escorts the blind um, sister back to her apartment or the hotel room that she's staying in, yeah. where they meet her other sister. And he then leaves, but the blind sister at this point is screaming to get him back, screaming to get him back, because she knows something is about to happen during this final phase of the film. Laura then returns from England, and... Oddly, happens to be walking down the same street as one of the, of the as the sisters sees them outside. Says, "Hey, they go in." Um, she explains again, "Laura, you have to stop your husband. You have to find him. You have to get him out of Venice." And then we have the the full end sequence that you've got a bit of a problem with, and so do I. And I think it's the same thing, but we'll come to it. <laughs> so we get th- through this end sequence. He, basically, um, um, Sutherland's character John starts seeing what looks like it could be his daughter in the red in not red dress that's Schindler's list the red kind Rain of outdoors costume raincoat yeah. and hat and stuff and and chases um her all over um Venice Laura does the same trying to find him and eventually he finds her and she turns around and she's a mini witch i guess she's a dwarf yeah a dwarf. It's and it's very, and then he get he gets stabbed. He 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 slowly dies. It's it's um. I mean, throughout it, the film, also it's been revealed that there's a serial killer or something in Venice. Yeah, there's a serial. There's two parts in the film where we see bodies in rivers, and there's one part where one of the um the drivers of the, of the boat turns around as it after he got past the scene and goes, eh. like, "Come on, seriously, have some respect." And it's kind of implied that the dwarf is the serial killer. Is the serial killer? Yeah. And that's my big problem with the film. Even uh, almost everything about it I mean, especially, is well especially shot. And... The scene where John turns around and he locks the doors before he locks goes the up. gate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why? Why would you? Why? <laughs> like, even if you think it's your daughter, it's still really fishy because she died. If you didn't remember, but yeah, he locks the he locks the gate, and he's killed by this dwarf in 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 the red um, the red kind of outdoors coat. And that was just the weirdest thing for me because, yeah. oh, oh, in the end, we, we we see that the slides that he was looking at in the first scene, and the woman who kind of looked like she was in a red costume, like the daughter, which bled over into the shape of the daughter as she drowned, is this serial killer. So this whole cyclical narrative comes together, and then the final part of the film, we got this glimpse where John saw the two sisters and his wife Laura on that barge. Well, that's actually his funeral procession 
on the barges as they also really really weird because why is he getting buried in venice yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's mainly. It's ma- Do you know the weirdest thing for me as well? Just on, on in hindsight, in terms of your daughter's just drowned in water, and you're going to the place on the earth where water is in the street. Why? <laughs> I know you love churches, you love your restoration. Maybe have a rethink. But yeah, that that was my only real major issue with the film, that reveal of the dwarf, because. The, the build-up is so wonderful and so tense. And we go through, as you said, this this discordant, disjointed music that, that builds up and builds up and builds up. And then just this weird kind of witch-looking dwarf lady turns around and stabs him. There's no precedent for it anywhere else. And I just, I don't know, I kind of wish it had been one of the other characters or I wish it had been maybe something more supernatural or just something that had ended yeah. the film more effectively yeah. for me. So yeah, um, it's a weird one because, as we've said, it's a masterclass in editing. <laughs> it's great use of mise en scène. One one aspect of the um, the visual motif that bears mention. Uh, you mentioned um, the the cross cut between um, the adult Christine giggling and Laura giggling. Yeah, I mean the consistent visual motif throughout the film is uh, like when when uh, when John spills the paint over the photo of the church that tells him yeah. that Christine is in danger. It forms this sort of smudge that's sort of shaped kind of like a tadpole yin yang. Well, it actually, if you, if you look at it, it actually looks like the, and the shape of, right. Okay. Let me put the drink down. And, and yeah, it's, 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 this shape is then cross cut to immediately correspond to the shape of Christine in John's arm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of almost, as you said, um, yes. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, that, it's and that motif reappears throughout the film. Like it's on yeah. a brooch uh, on the uh, blind psychic. She wears like a, is, mermaid, yeah. a mermaid brooch that's that has the same shape. Uh, it's also like um, the smudge is red. Christine's uh, re- raincoat is a very particular brand of red, and those colors are used purposefully throughout the film yeah. as well. Uh, to frame the imagery uh, in a really effective way as well. So it's. I think the mise en scène is amazing. It it is. It's 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 completely stellar. Uh, even even when we come to like John um, about a third of the way through the film, when he's he's seeing Laura speaking to the psychic sister and and her becoming at peace with it, but he doesn't believe it. And if you notice at that point, he starts wearing a blue coat with a bit of red on it. So you yeah. have this mise en scène, which is essentially suggesting. His isolation and detachment from what's been going on in Laura's life, and the way she's been looking at the psychic and, uh, and seeing his daughter, and but you still got that bit of red, and of course they they say um, the psychic actually says at one point that he has the second sight because his daughter was trying to communicate with him yeah. through the slides He's that she was in trouble. Exactly, exactly, which is a very unusual um, plot line, but it all fits in very cohesively, yeah. I think, and really well. It's a beautifully made film, beautifully made, and also Very the use so. of low contrast. You know, there's no, there's no point at which he he needs feels the need to to flood us with high contrast, which you yeah. often find, or, or brightness, which you'd often find in these types of films to 
exaggerate the environment. In this case, it's very gritty, it's very dark, it's very naturalistic in lighting terms. So you get a, a real sense of actually feeling the environment and being there rather than being presented this, this kind of painting version of what um, Venice actually is. Yeah, and the soundtrack is consistently discordant throughout. Um, yes. Like there's a scene that stuck out to me where it's after uh, John and Laura have had sex and Laura goes to see the two psychic elderly women and she invites John to come with her and John says, no, no, I can't deal with it. You, you you go ahead and she goes there and the elderly blind woman basically has the vicarious orgasm that Laura yes. had from the lovemaking session she had with John earlier and while that scene is going on there's the sound of a screaming cat in the background yeah repeatedly that's really hard my, not to know my, my girlfriend last night was particularly worried about that scene when we got to it she was just like no, what's going on? What's happening? Why? Why is she having a psychic orgasm? I don't. I don't get it. This is weird. This is weird. So yeah, that that's a very um, odd moment. And yeah. you're right. The music. The music kind of moves from it's everything not, from melancholy to macabre it's at times. Just the use of background sounds as well. Like, yeah, the ambient. Like, and and those that screaming cat is played throughout the film as well in several other places where it's just. Yeah. Meow in the background yeah really... good impression that's <laughs> <laughs> really is kind of weird and dissonant um and really sort of creates a distance yeah and that's what um he does through mise-en-scene he does through sound he does through editing he manipulates temporal and spatial relations to such a wonderful effect that the structure of the, of the sequences he creates they just every component works and works wonderfully well. I mean, as you said prior, if you're a film student out there and you want to look at a director who trusts his audience, lets them use their intellect to understand what's going on in conceptual terms, and just has an amazingly wonderful visual style that really entrances you when you watch, go and watch Don't Look Now. And, and I'd implore Silver to go away and, you know, when he's got time, go and watch Walkabout, go and watch um, The Money Fell to Earth. Uh, Man Fell to Earth in particular with David Bowie is another one of his films which is right. really fully trusts and embraces the notion that the audience is not just a blockbuster audience sat there watching the Meg or something, you know? Yeah. They really understand the language of cinema and uh, the meaning that's trying to be conveyed throughout these shots and sequences. Absolutely. Right, well, I think that's enough for the wonderful Don't Look Now. I implore everyone to go and see it. Well, you know, Nicholas Roy was a bit a, hard to come by if you're outside it, of the UK or the US. It can. Um, I found it on Amazon Prime for me. I was able to rent it all. It was, it was like one pound fifty more to buy it, so I just bought it through Prime. Um, but yeah, you're much better going and getting it on Blu-ray if you can from somewhere. Yeah. Um, if, if it's your type of film, but yeah, if, if you if you want just a pin-focused film that that you that just engages you. It's a wonderful, wonderful film to watch, I think. Right then. We have some Christmas surprises on the way. Because, yeah, of course, it is, that, it is that month where the festivities shall begin. So, it's Silver's Choice next week. And uh, what have you got for us, sir? Well, uh, we've talked about holiday movies and so forth. And I went with... Um, I mean, I don't know if it's particularly obscure, but it is... I think on the lower rung of, of Christmas movies, but uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles by John Hughes. 
Yeah. John Candy, Steve Martin, an yeah. absolute classic. Can't wait to discuss that. Cannot wait. Okay, folks, thank you so much for watching. Absolutely. Talk to us in the, yeah, talk to us in the comments about the films we discussed. Do you agree with us? Do you disagree? Do you have thoughts on Nicholas Rogue and his direction or, or some of his other films? We'd love to hear from you. And, of course, we've got Twitter and we've got Facebook. So come and follow us and talk to us about film. Uh, this has been the Last Edit Podcast. I have been Sleeve. And I have been Silver Hawkins. Take it easy. Take care.